If you would, please turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. I realize that uh, Blake Jennings is a really popular guy around here. In fact, it seems like every time that I come and I fill in for Blake, uh, even my friends will say to me, um, Brian, what are you doing here? Where's Blake? Uh, Well, Blake's over to Anderson. He's going to be filling in for me for the next few weeks, and I'll be here for the next few weeks uh, with you at Southwood. Uh, but I understand why you like Blake. I like Blake. Blake's one of my best friends, in fact, and um, you've gotten to know Blake pretty well over the last few years. Uh, Blake's a, an amazing guy, a wonderful guy. When he stands up here, he, he really pours out his heart for his, his family, and uh, he shares personal anecdotes and his love for Jesus Christ, and so you get to know, uh, really, uh, Blake's heartbeat as he speaks. But I wonder what you would say to me if I said, you know, I know you, th- you think you know Blake Jennings. But everything you think you know about Blake Jennings, that's, that's not really who Blake is. Blake Jennings, in fact, is a six-foot, five-inch, blonde Norwegian man. And he, he hates all things mechanical. In fact, Blake really can hardly even make a cup of coffee for himself. The real Blake Jennings, he loves to, to paint and to draw and uh, country-western dance. That, that's, that's really Blake Jennings. You say, Brian, you're crazy. You know, we may not know everything about Blake, but we know something about Blake, and that's not Blake. When you say the name Blake Jennings, this image comes into our mind, and what you're saying doesn't correspond to that. That just doesn't fit. That's not the real Blake Jennings. You know, you have an image of Jesus Christ in your mind. You may not be consciously aware of it, but you do. I do. We've read the Gospels. We've studied the Gospels. We've heard the Gospels preached. You've probably have seen some videos in the life of Jesus Passion of Christ, or the Jesus film, or maybe you watch Claymation Jesus with your kids, right? And you form this image of Jesus in your minds. But I've got to tell you, uh, all that you think you know of Jesus, it's not nearly high enough, or grand enough, or glorious enough. Not even close. The Apostle John had an image of Jesus in his mind. Because he knew Jesus, right? He had Uh, walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and shared meals with Jesus. He had slept out under the stars with Jesus. He'd heard Jesus preach and teach. He'd seen Jesus do miracles at the Last Supper. He was the one reclining on Jesus' breast. He was the beloved disciple. He was probably Jesus' closest friend. Friend, he had seen Jesus crucified, and then he had been with Jesus for 40 days as he walked around after his resurrection. He knew Jesus. But when Jesus appeared to him in the book of Revelation... It just blew him away. It was almost as if he had to get to know Jesus all over again. And I wonder, are we willing to let God shatter what we think we know of Jesus and really stretch our minds to see him more fully as he truly is? And most of us will probably not receive a revelation like John got. In fact, John was the only apostle that got this revelation of Jesus. But someday we will see Jesus just as John saw Jesus. And John wrote this down so that we could share in his experience, even if just in a small way, so that when we do see Jesus as he is, we're prepared. Maybe it doesn't surprise us quite as much because we know him a little bit more fully, a little bit more deeply than we knew him before. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. We're going to be sharing with John in what John saw of Jesus. 
I want you to start by reading with me chapter 1 and verse 1. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. I want you to notice first that this is the revelation. It's not revelations, right? Okay, It's not revelations, so don't, don't say, let's turn to the book of revelations. This is the book of revelation. It's one revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus. It's about Jesus. The whole book is about Jesus. Jesus. And to whom was it written? Well, John says that this revelation was given to Jesus to share with John so that John could share it literally with seven churches, seven churches that existed in his day in Asia Minor. But it wasn't really written just for those churches because when Jesus speaks to each of those churches individually, he says, now, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In other words, All churches listen in to what I'm saying to other churches. This is for the church as a whole. In fact, in verse 3, he says, Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. In other words, anyone who picks up the book and reads it, listens to it, and says, I will live differently because of it, is promised a blessing. This message is for us. It's for the church. And it is an amazingly contemporary message message for us. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why then did Jesus give this revelation to us today, living in this age? I want to give you three reasons this morning why Jesus gave this revelation. The first is this. The church needs a greater sense of urgency for Jesus Christ's return. The church needs to be stirred up that Jesus is soon to return. Notice what he says here. In verse 1, this revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. What things? What things are about to occur? And the message of the book is summarized in chapter 1, verse 7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. This is a summary of the entire book of Revelation. What the book of Revelation is about, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is about to come back. And it could happen at any moment. And when he does return, human history as we know it will be wrapped up. The final chapter will be written, and all the kingdoms of the earth will be set aside fully and finally and completely. They will be done. And the kingdom of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, will be established on earth. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and it's about to happen. Behold, I am coming quickly, quickly, quickly. Church, if we understand how events will end in human history, then what we understand is that at any moment in time, the church could be snatched out of human history. And the clock could begin marking the final seven years before Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. 
And the point of prophecy as a whole, not just the book of Revelation, but all of prophecy, is to give us this sense of urgency, the imminency, that at any moment in time, God could begin that final process and and wrap up human history and send His Son. And as a result of that, we should live differently today. Isn't that true? When you know time is short and you have an urgent task, don't you change what you're doing? You, You set aside all superfluous tasks. You set aside other things. You say, well, I don't need to really worry about that right now. I have to get this done because this is important and I've only got a limited amount of time and so I get focused. Now, I suspect we probably have a a few incoming freshmen who came early to College Station. Uh, There are are always a few of you super achievers. We're glad to have you. You know, you come early, rack up a few extra hours, start your freshman year with 60 hours Right? I know, they're, they're here, they exist, right? And I, I want to I forewarn you, you probably haven't experienced this yet, but almost certainly at some point in your college career, you're going to enter into finals, and you will, you'll find yourself with uh, an, an A in one class. You just, you've, you've nailed it, it's solid. All you've got to do, you get like a 30 on the final, and you've got that A. You go, good, I'm good to go. Got some other courses, maybe some solid B's and some other A's. You're looking good. But then there's that one course that's just, and it's been nagging you all semester. You don't really like the subject. You've been putting it off. And, and you've got a C. And to hold on to that C, you've got to get an 87. Right? I've got to lock the C down. I need an 87. So what am I going to do? I'm going to say, let's not worry about these for now. Let's focus here. And you stop going out with your friends. You stop hanging out with your friends. You stop sleeping you run a tab at the coffee shop. You just, bam, you're there. This is all you are thinking about because time is short. And you will be evaluated for how you have spent your time. That's the point of prophecy. Time is short, and we will be evaluated for how we have spent our time on earth. Our short time on earth. I love those stories from the Titanic where as people realized the ship was actually going down, they ran back to their rooms and they reached past their gold and their silver and their diamonds and grabbed an orange or an apple or a sweater. What they had formerly valued so highly suddenly became completely worthless to them because time was short. That's the point of prophecy. Moses just wrote one psalm, and in his psalm he said this. He said, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number our days, by which he meant our days are short. Right? The, the long life goes 80, 85 years. I just went to a funeral yesterday. A woman lived a long and a rich life of just 85 years which the Bible tells us is a, it's a breath, it's a vapor as compared to eternity. So in this breath, in this vapor, time is short for your life, and time is short because Jesus could return at any moment. How will you live? One of the reasons that God gave this prophecy to us is so that we would live differently. How then should we live? Read with me in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, 
priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. What has God called us to be? Called us to be a kingdom. When Jesus Christ returns, he will establish God's kingdom on earth, and it is our destiny to rule and to reign with him. In the meantime, as we wait for his kingdom to be established, we function as priests. And what does a priest do? A priest worships. A priest draws deep into a relationship with God and and praises God for all that he is, all that he has done, all that he will do. That's what a priest does. He worships. But a priest also serves as a mediator between God and man. The priest realizes that the priest stands in the gap between a broken world and a holy God. A broken world that that holy God will soon come and, and fix and put in order. And as he's standing in the gap, what he's trying to do is to populate that future kingdom. Because all that lasts is the kingdom of God and people. And so a priest king has a sense of urgency. Now I must focus my attention on worship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And witness. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so no matter what your job No matter where you live, no matter what your stage in life, your calling is the same. We are a kingdom of priests. I want you to turn with me to the very end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and verse 12. Let's read some of the final words of this revelation. Revelation 22, verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Behold, which means... Pay attention. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things, that is Jesus, he says, yes, in fact, I am coming quickly. And then John responds, amen. Come quickly, Jesus. Amen means it is so. That's right. I agree. Amen. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yes. And my question for you this morning is, can you say amen? No, really, seriously. I mean, if you honestly search your heart, can you say, yes, Lord, come quickly? Or do you say, "Uh, actually, Lord, pause. Uh, I I got some stuff going on here that's really important. Just got engaged. Can we at least, can we get to the wedding? Right? Can we get to the honeymoon? The groom says, yeah. Can we get to the, can we, oh, come on, I got some things I'm doing. Or, you know, I really love my job. I'm enjoying my job. I just built a new house. Can I enjoy this house for a while? Lord Jesus, I've, I've got my own kingdom. It's not, you know, capital K, but it's small K, and it's not bad, and I'm really loving what's happening here. Could you pause? That, no, no, Lord, don't come quickly. You say, no, Lord, don't come quickly because I don't really, I don't really want to be caught doing what I'm doing right now. Life's not really aligned with anything that matters. Or can you say, yes, Lord. Yeah, I, I, I am enjoying some things in my life right now. They're really wonderful. But I know your kingdom is so much greater. Come. I'll, I'll set aside any of these things that I enjoy. If you would just come and come quickly, Amen, Lord. Come quickly. 
The point of prophecy is to stir up the church so that we would get a sense of urgency and passion for the return of Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons that God gave this revelation to John. Second reason is that the church needs a clear vision of Christ's glory. Turn back to chapter 1 of Revelation and read with me in verse 9. I, John, your brother and your fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And in his face, his face, it was like the sun shining in its strength. Uh, This summer, you know, we're we're studying theophanies, which by now you know means uh, simply a manifestation of God. Two Greek words, theos and phoneros. Theos is God, phoneros, manifestation. These are are events in human history where God breaks in in a unique way to reveal himself or manifest himself. The greatest theophany is the incarnation, right? God took on human flesh, which my kids asked me to explain that, and I can't. I, I cannot. That God could, could clothe himself in human flesh. That's the greatest manifestation of, of God that he has ever given. It's the clearest message that he's ever given. And yet most people missed it because the glory of God was veiled in human flesh. And so most people passed by Jesus and they didn't know what they were passing. They just passed by an ordinary man and did, didn't even turn their head at all. But when John saw Jesus with the veil pulled back, he saw Jesus in his glory. It was stunning. It was overwhelming. It, it completely changed and altered his understanding of who his Savior was. It's a powerful, powerful vision. But John doesn't actually see something first. First, he experiences something. He experiences uh, the voice of Jesus. If you read with me in verse 10, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, and it sounded like the sound of a trumpet. In the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, there's another theophany. God revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites and the leaders of Israel. And he called the leaders of Israel to come up onto the mountain to have fellowship with him. It's described like this, chapter 19. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain. And a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And the the trumpet that blows there is the shofar, it's the ram's horn. That's the horn that calls people to meet with God. 
And what God is doing is he blows this trumpet as his voice sounds like a trumpet, a trumpet so loud that it, it shakes the people physically, that they are being invited to come into the presence of God so that God can reveal himself more deeply to them. So when John hears the voice of Jesus, it, it sounds to him like a trumpet because he's being invited into a deeper understanding of Jesus Christ. It's a voice like the sound of a trumpet. He says it's the voice that it sounded like, like rushing water, just powerful <laughs> rushing water. It was, it was so loud, it was, it was overwhelming. Now, I think sometimes we, we imagine heaven and we think of heaven, uh, you know, it's, it's clouds, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's angels, chubby harps, it's quiet, it's peaceful. Maybe it's a golf course, right? It's just chirping birds and sound of the wind. And I'm sure that there will be very peaceful moments when God's kingdom comes, but there will also be moments that are just visually and physically, auditorily just overwhelming. They just shake us. And sometimes some of you go, hey, gosh, the music's just so, it's just, it gets so loud over here. I, I need to warn you, uh, heaven will be louder. From time to time, heaven will just, it, it'll, it'll rattle your teeth. The sound of rushing waters. I'm sure some of you have, have been to Niagara. You've probably all seen the f- pictures of Niagara Falls. Uh, I can tell you, I, I grew up in that part of the world. Uh, the pictures don't do justice to being at Niagara Falls. But it's not just the site. The site is amazing because the, the falls kind of wrap around you. But really it's the experience of Niagara Falls because you've got mist in your face and you've got beauty surrounding you in the falls and you see rainbow reaching through the mist. But what always overwhelmed me as a, as a child more than anything was just how amazingly loud it was. You know, it's just, it's a roar and it's constant. You can't turn off the falls. There's no pause. There's no break. And as you're standing on that overlook platform or if you get to go on one of the boats, it's just, it's, it really is, it's deafening. Don't even bother to have a conversation. You can be standing right next to a person yelling into their ears and they cannot hear you. There's no point in talking about anything else. You just need to experience the fall. Just experience it. And when John steps into the presence of God, he steps into the throne room of God, there's no point in thinking about anything else or having another conversation. All that he is drawn to is Jesus. Eugene Peterson said this, the point of revelation is not to inform us about God, but to involve us in God. It's not just to make us smarter about the data that is God but to pull us into a deeper love and appreciation of who God is. What John experiences first is this commanding voice that forces him to turn and to see who it is. Read with me in verse 12. Then I turned, because I had to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Uh, What he sees is a man who is standing in priestly garments, and it should be obvious. Why does Jesus appear in priestly garments? Because he is our great high priest, right? He's girded across uh, with a, a sash. 
the normal people would be girded around the waist because if an emergency came, they had to pull up their robe, tuck it in, and run. But the priests weren't allowed to run. Why? Because God's always in control. And here is Jesus standing, robed as a priest, because He is our great high priest. He is the one who makes intercession for us before the Father. There's a beautiful image of this uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a vision of the destruction of Jerusalem. And in his vision, God is about to uh, destroy all false worship. He sees a man who's dressed as a priest. He's in in linen garments, dressed as a priest. And he's got a list with names on it. And he's got a, a, a pen with ink and he's to take his list and walk through the city of Jerusalem. And anyone who's on that list is one who belongs to the Lord, who worships the Lord, and who is turned away from false idols. And he's to go to each of those people and to mark them on the forehead because they belong to God. And because they have the mark of God, they are saved. They are delivered from the wrath of God. And I think that's just such a beautiful picture of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to God because you've believed in Jesus Christ. And so you bear the mark of God, belonging to God, son of God, daughter of God, child of God. You've been marked, not with ink, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when God looks down upon you, he doesn't have to look down upon you and see sin and the death that should come from that sin, but he can see the blood of Jesus Christ and the wrath of God passes over you. That is Jesus, our high priest. And so John looks and he sees this this glorious figure whose voice is overwhelming and realizes this is one who stands between me and God so that I can come into the presence of God. This is my great high priest. Why is this significant? Because as you read the rest of the book of Revelation, you go page after page after page. It's about destruction. God's going to bring judgment on the earth. But before he brings judgment, John is reminded that that one who will judge is also a priest and God's longing, God's desire for his creatures is not judgment. His desire for them is blessing. That they would receive the mediation of blessing through this great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus appears first as high priest. Third, John notices just his, his appearance. He begins uh, at his head and he moves downward. It says, In the middle I saw of those lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And you can see that John is he's, he's reaching for a description. He says, I, I didn't even know how to describe it, but when I look up and I see his face because I'm looking for the, the one who's speaking to me and I, I, I see his, his head, it's, it's glowing, it's white, it's what, what, the whitest thing I've seen, it's snow, it's wool. And the reader should immediately think back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel experienced a theophany and he was brought into the presence of God, into the throne room of God as John is here. And he looks up and he sees the Ancient of Days. And what does he observe? He says his hair is white. It's like wool. It's like snow. Which is a representation of the wisdom of God and the eternality of God. In other words, this vision that John has of Jesus is equating Jesus with God. He shares in God's wisdom and God's eternality. His hair is white. It's white like wool. Verse 14, it's like snow, he says. His eyes... 
His eyes are like a, a flame of fire. Throughout Scripture, the eyes of God are reference to God's omniscience. He knows all. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. They're watching the good and the evil. Jesus shares in God's wisdom, his eternality. He shares in God's omniscience. God knows all. God sees all. His eyes are like a flame burning in fire. His feet, they're like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His feet are the foundation. His feet are strong. In the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, you know, they, actually, they really go together. You can't understand Revelation without understanding Daniel. And there's great similarity in the visions that are received. Daniel sees the Ancient of Days lifted up and he's on a throne, high and exalted, and his hair is like wool. It's white like wool. And then Daniel turns and he sees uh, one like a son of man who's beautiful and glorious. He's presented before the Ancient of Days and he's given a kingdom. Kingdom that will last forever. John's revelation vision really corresponds to that. He sees Jesus, that one who will rule and reign, and we immediately think back to Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Nebuchadnezzar was given a vision that troubled him and he couldn't interpret it. And so Daniel was brought in to interpret. And in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, there was a statue. The statue represented all the kingdoms of the earth. The head of that statue was Nebuchadnezzar. He was great. He was king at that time, and he was truly a, a great ruler. A vast kingdom, great wealth. But his kingdom would be overthrown, and the statue represented history, and kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Persians, Medes, Greeks, Romans. And as you got down to the bottom of the statue, the feet were a mixture of, of, of clay and iron meaning they were actually fragile because they were fractured. As Daniel's vision moves on, God raises up a stone, a rock, and that stone, a rock, becomes a great mountain. It's a mountain that actually fills the entire earth, a mountain that covers the entire earth. And as that mountain is covering the entire earth, guess what? There's no place for the statue. And so that mountain comes and it shatters the statue from head to foot, shatters it so completely that you can't even find the dust from the statue. And the point of the revelation that was given to Daniel is that all the kingdoms of the earth will be removed. They will all be set aside and then just one kingdom will remain. It is the kingdom of God and His Son Jesus Christ and it will remain forever and ever. John is given a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is pictured as this one. All of the elements that he sees in this vision are pointing to Jesus Christ as conquering, ruling, reigning king over all of creation. He is the one. Read with me in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. The right hand is the hand of power, right? It's the the hand of strength. And in that hand, he has seven stars. And in the cosmology of John's day, the seven stars were the seven planets. And depending on how those seven planets were aligned, that determined your fate. That determined your life. But in John's vision... Those seven stars are actually in the hand of Jesus. He's in control. And they're not seven planets. They're seven angels or messengers that Jesus is about to send out into all of the earth to take control of human history and put it under the feet of God. In other words, he is in control. In his right hand, I saw the seven stars held out, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Two words for sword in Greek. 
This is the word for the, the Thracian or the barbarian sword. It was a, a big, thick, double-edged sword. It was an imagery of strength. And obviously, Jesus doesn't literally have a sword coming out of his mouth. Right? He's, not, he's not ghastly. It's a metaphor for his strength and his power to rule and to reign over all of creation. And just as God spoke creation into existence, when Jesus confronts his enemies, it won't be a difficult battle. He will speak. You're dead. This is an image of Jesus as ruler. But in the midst of this vision of Jesus as ruler, told that his, his face is turned toward John, and it's like the sun shining in its strength. Again, verse 16. In his right hand he's held, held seven stars. Out of his mouth came the sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in in its strength. The face of God turned toward John, shining in its strength, is a vision of blessing. We should think uh, immediately of Aaron's blessing in Numbers chapter 6. He was told, when you bless the people, say this, the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance or his face toward you and give you peace. Again, even though we're about to turn the page and enter into this period of of judgment on the earth to restore the kingdom of God, God's face is turned toward humanity and blessing. God longs to bless. And what the church needs is a a fresh vision of the glory of Christ, a fresh sense of of urgency that Jesus is about to return. Life is about to change. And the church needs a deeper appreciation of the presence of Jesus Christ among us. Read with me again verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So where is Jesus in the middle of this vision? Well, he's in the middle of of seven golden lampstands. And as you read the book of Revelation, you go, man, There's a lot of weird stuff in here. What does this mean? What does that mean? Interestingly, in the book of Revelation, frequently, John will tell you what the vision means. He'll say, it's a metaphor, but it means this. And he is told, in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So where is Jesus in this vision? People, he's right here. This is where Jesus is. He's standing in the midst of the church. Now, I don't don't see him right now. I suspect none of you see him either. But Jesus is in the midst of his church. The Spirit of God dwells in us individually. The Spirit of God dwells among us in a very special way corporately. And when we gather together to worship God, Jesus is here. His presence is here through the Spirit. It's it's hard to grasp, isn't it? I can believe it with my mind to to enter into that point and really grasp it with my heart. It's difficult. But how should it affect us if we genuinely believe that Jesus Christ is present among us right right now? He's watching, he's, he's listening. He's observing the thoughts of our mind, the meditations of our heart. He's enjoying our praise when we lift it up. 
The Spirit is reaching into our, our hearts and minds, convicting of sin. He is present with us. If we really genuinely believe that, how should it, it affect us? Let me give you a few thoughts. Read with me verse 17. When I saw Jesus, John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I hope you are beginning to observe uh, in these theophanies a pattern. That is, a few people get them, not everybody gets them. I wish I'd get one, but I haven't. Only a few, even in Scripture, get these manifestations of God. But what happens when a person is privileged enough to get a vision of Jesus Christ or of God, the Father, the angel, the Lord, they always end up on their faces. Isaiah is on his face. Uh, Ezekiel is on his face. Daniel is on his face. Paul, the road to Damascus, is on his face. People just, they hit the deck. They finally see Jesus as he is. They stop comparing themselves to one another, relatively speaking, and they go, oh, as Isaiah said, woe is me. Chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah, woe, 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 to, you know, woe to Edom and woe to Egypt and woe, and then he sees the glory of God and says, woe is me. I'm undone. It's humility. Now, many of you uh, know my wife. Um, if you've met her, you know her, her gift is encouragement, uh, verbal encouragement. She loves to encourage. And she loves to encourage me, and I appreciate it. I really enjoy it. Uh, honestly, sometimes I don't believe it. <laughs> uh, one of the things she's been saying recently to me in the last couple months, she goes, you know, I can tell that you've been working out. She goes, you, she goes you're getting big. <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks, honey. But okay, you know, observe. Not big, right? I mean, never have been big, never will be big. I'm okay with that. I could work out really hard and get a little bigger, but not big, right? Because I, I know big people. I work out at Gold's, and I know several of the Gold's gym trainers, they go to Southwood here. They're my friends. And I, I say hi to those guys, and I go, that's big. But when I'm standing next to them, nobody says, man, you're big, or you're even getting big. They, they don't, never crosses their mind, because that's big, that's not, right? But if I compare myself, I don't know, to when I was 14, and <laughs> I'm bigger. But I live in reality, so I just say, thanks, honey. <laughs> That's not true. A few weeks ago, my son and I went to uh, A&M basketball camp. They had a, one father-son night, right? He did camp for a week, and they had a father-son night. And at father-son deal, they had a, a dad slam dunk contest. It was awesome. Right? They bring the goal down to eight foot. <laughs> And whoever wants to, you know, you can do your best slams on the eight-foot goal. And they actually made a video. They gave us a video of our slams, eight-foot, you know. And it was fun. And we finished the slam dunk thing, and then they let the dads scrimmage. And the kids get to watch their dads scrimmage. And I will be honest. I'm looking around at some of these guys and going, I can still take him. I can see, you know, I, I mean, he may be five years younger or 10 or honestly some of these guys are like 25 years younger than me but I go I can still get around I can still take it to the hole right and so that's and we're all I mean we are we're measuring up one another we're comparing to one another we are we cannot help it and then we finish our scrimmage and we sit down with our kids and then the A&M team scrimmages in front of us <laughs> you know and we stop comparing ourselves to one another and we realize none of us belong on the floor right now I'd be like, what happened? You know what I mean? It's just, it's fast. It's strong. Goal's back at 10 foot. It's not at eight. We compare ourselves to one another. We might say, you know, I'm doing okay. 
compare ourselves to the proper standard, we say, woe is me. And we have humility. And when we begin to really believe that Jesus Christ is present in our midst, we will become more humble toward God and more humble toward one another. Read with me again, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he placed his right hand on me and he said, Do not be afraid. I am the first, I am the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys. I have authority over death and of Hades. The second thing we should experience when Jesus is in our midst is assurance. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say to him, get up. John, you know, it's probably good for you to stay there. <laughs> stay right where you are, but don't be afraid. Because I control death. And you're not going to die. You're safe. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you're safe. Death can't touch you. When you really experience the presence of God in your life, it brings assurance. Third, it brings purpose. Verse 19, Therefore, John, write. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. John, pick up your pen. This is not just for you, John. This is for my entire church. Why? Well, because my church needs greater sense of urgency. I'm coming soon. All of this is going to unfold soon. So church, live differently. When you see me as I am in all my glory, even just a little bit, uh, understand a little bit of what John saw and we share in that, we say, oh, Christ is so much greater and more glorious than I imagined him to be. The videos don't do justice. I want to worship I have a deeper appreciation for his presence that drives me to humility, drives me to assurance and confidence that I belong to God, but also purpose. Right, men and women, we are a, a kingdom of priests. When Jesus returns, we will return with him. We will rule and reign with him. Right now, we are preparing for that. How do we prepare? We worship. Okay, we worship. We grow in the depth and, and, and the love of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also realize all these people around us who may not know Jesus Christ, Jesus wants them to populate his kingdom. Jesus wants them to populate his kingdom. That's why his face is turned toward them like the sun shining in its strength. Men and women, we need to be busy. We need to be focused about the things that really matter. What I'd like you to do for next week is this. I want you to read Revelation 4 through 5. Read Revelation 4 through 5. Read it multiple times. It's short. It's Those two chapters are two of my absolute favorite chapters in the entire Bible. So read them, read them over and over again. Just take some notes, mark out in your margin, what do you observe about who Jesus is and and what he has done and what he will do in his pattern. Just make those observations in the margin. And then think for a few moments, how should all of that change how we live today? What in your life is out of line and so you say no not amen lord don't come quickly but lord wait what needs to be brought back in alignment in your life so you can say yes lord come quickly can't wait let's pray father i thank you that you gave this revelation to john and i thank you that he obeyed you and he wrote it down and that we can share just a, a little a little glimpse through his writing and to what he saw. And I pray, Father, that you'd stir our hearts afresh, that we would be willing to let your spirit stretch and expand.
who we understand Jesus to be. Father, I pray that you'd create within us a sense of urgency and longing for the soon return of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we wait, I pray that we would not just worship, we would draw others in to your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Talk about Revelation 4 through 5.